This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. And boy, it has been quite some time since we have dropped an episode. I have been so busy. I've always been busy, but I've even been busier than my normal busy in recent months. And of course, as I always mention, this production falls on me A to Z. Someone's got to do the editing. Someone's got to do the mixing and mastering, the releasing and all of that. But now that we are back, what a fabulous episode to start with. Dr. Sheila Nazarian is incredible. She is a renowned plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills, but much more importantly, she's also a great passionate advocate for Israel Online, a social media influencer, someone with a fabulous personal story. Her family escaped from Iran after the revolution several decades ago. Dr. Zarian has a Netflix show called Skin Decision Before and After. She's working on a memoir about her family's story and her own life. She has a podcast called The Closet and so much more, really just a brilliant, effervescent woman full of passion to make the world a better place and to represent Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, in the world at large. We're timing the release of this episode with Noruz, which is the Persian New Year. You can look it up online and learn a little bit more about it. So we're coming out on Monday, March 20th, 2023. Of course, many people will be listening days, weeks, months, or years after that, but nonetheless, that is the timing of our current episode, and thankfully we do have some amazing other episodes coming up very shortly with not nearly the break, God willing, that we've had in the recent month or so. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Questions or comments to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Please subscribe or follow if you're on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening, whether that is Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever platform you may be consuming this on. And please spread the word to friends and family as well. It really does make a major difference in our listening audience. And now to our conversation with plastic surgeon, Israel advocate, social media influencer, and much more, Dr. Sheila Nazarian. We are here with Dr. Sheila Nazarian. I hope I pronounced that correctly. She'll correct me if I didn't, but she is a renowned plastic surgeon in Los Angeles and has a fabulous story about her own personal and familial heritage and journey. And very, very excited to speak today to you. How are you, Sheila? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. And I hope it's okay, Sheila, outside of the OR, is that is Totally that okay? fine. <laughs> okay, fantastic. If, if I was under your scalpel, I would I would call you doctor. But uh, since we're separated by a couple thousand miles, I feel safe. So, <laughs> Sheila, where, where are you from? And I guess, you know, I want to get, in, of course, to your family's origin story. Tell me first where you were born personally and kind of where you grew up. So um, my family uh, was in Iran. And I was actually, you know, my mom was 1978 and she was pregnant with me and they could kind of see where things were headed in Iran. So they said, hey, might not be a bad idea to have this child be born in America. At least we'll have one citizen in the family just in case. So when she was nine months pregnant, uh, and they sort of had this conversation around like seven months of pregnancy. So they quickly arranged to do a quick trip to New York, where some of my family already was on my mom's side. And we, she was nine months pregnant, landed in New York. I was born in LIJ. By the way, I need to ask your birthday because I was also born in 1978 and I was also born in LIJ. So oh, I was born in 1979. Oh, but just... We missed each other. Okay. We missed each other. So after she gave birth to me, they were in New York for like another month. And then they went back to Iran. All of our stuff was there. And my dad had a great job. And this is pre-fall, right? This is this is still the Shah. Right. So this is August. Right. Yeah. So I mean, mean, it's kind of like it's happening. So they went back. um, And, you know, at that time, the revolution happened. Iran-Iraq war started happening shortly thereafter. They were kind of like you know, it was hard to go. Like you're, you built this amazing life. I remember we had like a three-story marble house with like columns everywhere, very Persian. Um, They ended up selling the house. We moved into a small apartment. 
and sort of, you know, arranged the escape. Now, what happened is my dad said he was going on a medical conference to New York. There was like a pathology conference happening. So he left, left some of the passports of me, my mom and my sister with the government. and was just like, listen, I'm only going to this medical conference. Like we're not all trying to get out of here. And so he landed in Vienna and just sort of waited there for us. Um, he was in touch with Hayas, which is a nonprofit that helps asylum seekers. And so he became the unofficial uh, doctor for Hayas and would treat all the asylum seekers that Hayas was helping and, and just trying to uh, arrange for visas. My mom, my sister, and I went to the bazaar one day and we got put in the back of a truck and they covered us with burlap and corn. And and that is how we got close to the um, Pakistani border. We spent one night in the desert and um, the next day the border police actually saw us. They began shooting. Um, We were able to escape by driving very fast and just ducking in the back of this pickup truck around our luggage. Uh, we were with we were with a lot of other people. There was two trucks, so there's about 20 of us escaping together. And then we sort of were in Pakistan for three months in Karachi, waiting for mm-hmm. visas to reunite with my father in Vienna. When we mm-hmm. finally were able to get to Vienna, we were in Vienna for another three months, waiting for visas to come to the U.S. And so that's sort of the origin story. It sounds it's amazing. Your your recall is incredible. How you remember this as. Well, you know, it's interesting. No, I'm I'm working on writing a book um, about this, like, you know, my whole just like journey in general. And it's really fascinating because I have, you know, somebody helping me write it. And she asks me questions that I didn't even think to ask. And I'm like, oh, it just sort of like blended together in my brain. But when an outsider asks you further, wait, what did, how did your sister feel? Or like, what did your father say about this? Or like, why did they wait so long? Or what was the final straw that like made them say, we got to get out of here? You know, like, so it forced me to go back and it was beautiful to interview my own dad and interview my sister who was 13 at the time. I was six, seven at the time. Oh, okay. You were a little bit older. Okay. I, I thought that you were yeah. a baby still at the time. Okay. No, 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 no. You guys we didn't leave until the mid So okay. I was six. And then by the time we made it to the States, I was seven, but my, my sister was 13. So much harder. Uh, and so it forced me to kind of go back and, and ask these questions of my own family that you don't take the time to do. And sometimes I'll tell my dad, like, why didn't you tell me that before? And he's like, well, you never asked, you know? So I think it's like so beautiful, this this process, just to touch base and, and really get your own roots and your own history down pat. That's awesome. It sounds like she's uh, really good at drawing that out. She Maybe she should be a podcaster. Yeah. Uh, this, this is a ghostwriter. Um, so, so rewinding just a bit or even more than a bit, how long had your family been in Iran? Like, what was the initial, you know, migration over there? Where where were they coming from? How many generations, if you know, that far yeah, back? Yeah, so my dad had told me six generations back, his side came from Iraq. Okay. And he said something like our last name was Orange, but then we changed it for some reason to avoid persecution, or I don't know, you know, I have, that's I have to dig harder on that. My mom passed away when I was 16 from breast cancer, so... I always thought we were like Spanish Inquisition. And I think part of, you know, us, because I do have Kakashi, which is a part of Iran that is known for being um, from Portugal or Spain. And so um, there is a little bit of that, but I actually did my genetic testing like a few months ago. Don't tell me you have some Ashkenazi blood. Oh in my there. God. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, and it's funny because my dad is like 94% Iranian Jew, right? I was 73% Italian. What? I was uh, 5% Punjabi, 5% Gujarati, 10% Greek, and only 10% Jewish. Oh my gosh. And you guys, for those of you who don't know me, I'm like the Iron Dome of social media, like fighting against anti-Semitism. <laughs> and I'm like, the 10% is, is strong. It's a strong force. Oh my gosh. So how did you... How did you um... Reconcile that in terms of genealogy. Did you figure that there was adoption or some kind no, of no, not at all. So my mom's side clearly, because my mom's side, we you know, she's not uh, alive, but she I don't think she even knew this. But I'm I'm trying to get my cousins and stuff to go get tested because we are darker. Right. And you know, Persians in general, like the word Caucasian comes from the Caucasus Mountains in Iran. The word Aryan, Aryan means Persian. My son's name is Arya. It means like ancient Persian. So they're very fair-skinned people. So me being dark, I just thought Spanish Inquisition, right? But really, I went back and and Googled, you know, Italian Jews, and there's like a very rich history. And Italy was never part of the Persian Empire. 
So uh, now I'm like, I got to make a separate trip to Italy and I'm trying to get my cousins to go get tested. But yeah, I did for a second call the DNA company. And I was like, you messed this up. And they literally replied back, DNA, don't lie. And you're a doctor of all things. So. <laughs> I know, but it's interesting because they're like, it doesn't matter what percentage your dad is. It's what slice of his DNA you got and what slice of your mom's DNA you got. So they could be like 0.5% Italian, but that's the entire slice that you got, that Italian slice. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I, I did freak out for a second. I called my dad. I'm like, dad, is there anything you want to tell me? <laughs> it was like the funniest thing in the whole entire world. Very, very entertaining for him. But no, so I'm trying to get my cousins to go to like verify this Italian heritage. Yeah. Okay. That that's why that's really, really interesting. Okay. So six generations of your dad's side, and then your mom's side's got the Italian stuff. And I, I imagine you grew up Farsi and the whole Iranian yep. culture, like yep. that whole thing. So we were in Tehran um until we escaped. Uh and then certainly, you know, first generation when we arrived, I didn't speak English at all. So definitely you know, big into the Iranian community. My mom has five sisters. So they're, you know, my cousins were who we hung out with. And so, yeah, no, very tight knit community. I think the trauma and, you know, I hate the words like, I don't, I'm not consider myself in any way a victim at all. I hate words like our collective trauma, you know, right, but right, I mean, right, I right. think like there is a bit of that, right? So I think when we came here, the Persians tend to be very tight knit, the Persian Jews, especially in New York and Los Angeles and the Great Neck or Hollywood. Those are the two options, right? <laughs> and there's a small faction in Atlanta. Oh, is there? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. Is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think our children are a little bit more globalized and diversified in their, um, you know, social circles. Right. Right. That makes sense. So did you grow up? I mean, tell, I guess, tell people a little bit about the Iranian culture and how it's maybe distinct from other, uh, you know, other Jewish traditions and, you know, maybe obviously how, of course it was deeply influenced by the region and, and so forth. And it's not Arabic and many people make that, you know, mistake uh, and conflate those. So share a little bit about what that, unique flavor of Jewish life is like as an Iranian Jew? I think that's a really interesting question. So, I mean, I think stereotypically what we're known for is, you know, certain things are very important. I think family obviously is very important. Education is very important. Appearances are very important. We always joke, we're like, this person's on financial aid or on food stamps, but they have to drive a black on black Mercedes because their their daughters won't marry well if they don't put on the appearance of that. Um, but success is paramount. Survival is paramount. Beauty, fashion, food are important. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very interesting community and in that if you need help, 500 people are there to help. I've never been to a Persian funeral with less than 500 people there. Like wow. people show up. But at the same time, if you go to the movies with your cousin, your mom is getting a phone call that someone saw her daughter with a boy at the mall. <laughs> yeah. Clannish would be a, a good descriptor. Yeah. It's clannish. There's pettiness, but there's also a lot of beautiful moments as well. Growing up, were you totally ensconced in that culture? Or did you have any opportunities to venture out? terms of where we went, schooling and things like that. Yeah, I actually was one of the only people that ventured out. So I, you know, my mom passed away when I was 16. So yeah. I had to be very independent and sort of grow up very quickly. Uh, and I went to Columbia University, which at that point, you never left your house until you got married because it meant you were being promiscuous. That's yeah. what, it, what it meant. But it was, you know, the best school. Uh, um, I applied early. My it was the best school. My dad would let me go away to. Let me put it that way. He's like, I need to have at least a twenty percent Jewish population. Your sister, my sister, was in New York at the time. I have, you know, my mom, two of my mom's sisters, three of my mom's sisters were in New York, and so he felt like I had a safety net there. So I just applied early, got in, and that's where I went. Um, when I came back, I remember for my first time, my uncle, we were in a Shabbat dinner at their house, and he goes, "Show me your belly button and show me your tongue." meaning I for sure got a belly button ring and a tongue ring because that's what girls do if they leave the home before they're married. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I did that. And then I went to Albert Einstein. I stayed in New York for medical school. And then I met my husband. That's a whole other story. Um, is he a doctor I, as well? He's a neurosurgeon. Yeah. Neurosurgeon. Okay. And is yeah. he uh, also Persian? Yes. Also Persian. Okay, that's required. I know that was required. 
You know, my family just said, you know, my dad said two things. He said, marry a Jew and get your education. He didn't care what kind of Jew, you know, but I'll tell you well, personally. He met Jew met Iranian. Come on. <laughs> no, it didn't. For him, that was, it didn't. You would have been cool I'll, with it? No, I think what happened is I never thought I would actually marry Iranian just because really? I was so like, I wasn't in the community that much. Like even the private school I went to in uh, Los Angeles only had three Persian people. Really? Where did you go? Yeah. Harvard Westlake. Now okay. it's like very lots of Persians, but back then there was like three of us. I can like name them. So I, I don't feel like I felt so connected to the community probably until medical school. Cause Albert Einstein is like all the Persian Jews from LA go to Albert Einstein for medical school. So we were like watching Lakers games and like making Persian food. And uh, I really didn't feel that connected until actually medical school. So I never thought I would marry Persian, but dating outside of the Persian community, I found that the, expectations of what you would do pre-marriage were not what I was willing to do. And so uh, no matter how hard I tried, I just felt like it wasn't, we weren't on the same page Interesting. Me and the non-Persian boys. So I ended up starting found the Persian, Persian. Persian boys were more traditional in a sense. Correct. I mean, they might not be traditional with non-Persian girls, but they, they knew how to behave in front of a Persian girl. Interesting. Very, very yeah. interesting. It's yeah. kind of like a, a, a code. You know, yes, uh, it's a code. Because you know the community is so tight knit. If you do stuff, you're going to see that person for the rest of your life. Every wedding, every bar mitzvah, likely your kids are going to end up going to us the same school at some point. So it's just like you don't mess around in the community that's going to be staying with you forever. Fascinating, fascinating. What interested you in medicine early on? Yeah, so I actually did wood shop in the fourth grade. And I loved how specific the blueprints were. I loved building with my hands. And so I either wanted to do architecture or orthopedic surgery. So I started kind of looking into both of those. I didn't like architecture because I wanted to also build it. I started following an orthopedic surgeon around. It was very cookie cutter, not very creative. And so somebody was like, hey, why don't you look into plastic surgery? And so I started shadowing my plastic surgeon and I really liked it. And that's what happened. That's really, really cool. Um what now pl i think plastic surgery is like a uh a kind of a, a black box for a lot of people if they think of like nose jobs and you know vanity yeah. especially in la but really it has a lot to do with also rehabilitation and you know an injury and so forth um yeah right right Tell, maybe say a little bit about what you actually do yeah so in plastic surgery training it's one of the top two hardest residencies to get into so you really have to be excellent for why why is that I just think it's uh, something that a lot of people are interested in. Um, I think ultimately it gives you a, a pretty good lifestyle. I, I mean, it's really dermatology and plastic surgery. Those are the two hardest residencies to get into. So oh, interesting. Yeah. So no, we, we have a very extensive training, a very broad training. So we have to learn craniofacial surgeries. So cleft lip and palate, um, cranial deformities in children, then we have to learn hand surgery. So that's broken bones, ripped tendons, um, amputations, all of that stuff. We have to learn microsurgery, which is taking some part of your like meat skin and, uh, you know, fat from one part and then reconnecting vessels. So for example, using stomach fat and skin to reconstruct breast after breast cancer. So that's microsurgery. We have to learn burn surgery, which is ICU care and really life-saving, uh, skin grafting, stuff like that. And then lastly, we have to learn aesthetics. So once you learn all those things and you pass the boards on all those things, then you can subspecialize and choose which avenue you want to you know, go into. So yeah, I mean, just know, you know, plastic surgeons, I think they're an interesting bunch. <laughs> I think there's a lot of different personalities there. And personality types, but just know that the, you know, if you're going to a real plastic surgeon, a board certified plastic surgeon, that's the training and that's the broadness of their training that they received. That's not just about vanity. It's, it's about uh, really helping. No. People. And honestly, just the aesthetic stuff, or I wouldn't even say that's about vanity. Like I have a Netflix show. I encourage all of you guys to go watch it. It's called skin decision. It was nominated for an Emmy. It was nominated Amazing. for people's choice award. And I think what we did is we really changed the face of plastic surgery to the public. So we followed around two patients every episode who've been through some sort of life experience or trauma. It could be acne scars. It could be getting shot by their husband nine times. Um, and we really take docu-style, you know, through these people's feelings, through their procedures and their recoveries. And you really get a sense of why people actually get plastic surgery. It could be a mom who had quadruplets, who has skin hanging and hasn't undressed in front of her husband in years. I mean, 
just giving her her body back and her confidence back not only affects her relationship with her husband, it makes her a better mom. So I always say like when you do something good for a mom, make a mom feel good, it has ripple effects so far beyond just that single person. So I think it really just give, does justice to what we do and it helps people understand that it's really about self-care and quality of life and confidence that doesn't just affect that one person, it affects that entire person's community. Beautiful. And I, I love the, uh, the p- doing plastic surgery on plastic surgery. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, very meta. <laughs> I, and I, and I want to get to the Netflix show, but before that, I just, you know, tell me a little bit as you became, obviously you got married, your husband became a neurosurgeon. So I guess you're both pretty busy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know when you actually see each other, but uh, may- maybe more often. He now, would say but... the same thing. Ari. He would say the same thing. <laughs> there you go. Like you didn't send me, I promise. But uh <laughs> So what were you involved with? I mean, I guess your career was probably pretty demanding and dominant early, especially early on when you were obviously residency and, and fellowships and all that kind of stuff. Did you get involved in the community? Like what were some of your passions early on? And I know at some point Israel became a really important cause to you as well. Mm-hmm. So just like growing up, I was really artistic. I love dance. I did ballet and hip hop for about 12 years. I was really into theater in high school. But you have to understand, once you get into residency, it's all-encompassing. I had three children during residency. I had two during general surgery and one during plastic surgery. I took two years off between general surgery and plastic surgery. That's when I had my second child. I ran the research division for USC's plastic surgery. And I did a master's in medical management at the Marshall School of Business. I I wouldn't call that taking two years off. It was. It was taking off. (laughs) Reading funny, and learning is a luxury. You have a funny idea. Uh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. So what that sort of, you know, it, it didn't allow me much time to indulge in what I enjoy doing. I didn't even think about, I was in survival mode. Like this is, you yeah. know, three kids under the age of five breastfeeding at the County hospital. I mean, brought me pumping at the County hospital, like just trying to hold it together. And when I was home, I was either sleeping or getting ready to go back to the hospital. I mean, it was hard. And um, those years until the age of 33, when I graduated, uh, I didn't have much time for anything else. It was just sort of, if anything, I was in denial that I was sacrificing anything because I was just trying to get through it. And then once I got out, I really just joke that my life started at 33. I, I have very little recall of any social life before then. Even that my hospital, I mean, my husband and I will drive by a restaurant. He's like, oh, remember we went there? And I'm like, you went there with someone else. I've never <laughs> What's her name? Like, no, I swear it was you. <laughs> it was my sister. It was my sister. <laughs> um, one time he was actually wrong. I'd never been to that restaurant. He's like, see, I think all my memories are with you. And I'm like, okay, good thing. <laughs> But yeah, I, I I really started, you know, kind of carving out. But then you you know you come out. I built a practice. The first three four years of the practice, that's like a fourth child because you it's like a baby. You have to nurture it. You have to pay attention to it with any business. Getting the, just sourcing clients and kind of getting yeah, the just out. you know advertising. I was making a ton of videos online, just explaining simple things like what's the difference between a mini tummy tuck and a full tummy tuck. What's the difference between a breast lift and a breast reduction? So. Uh, you know, I was always kind of busy. I've always kept myself busy uh, like that, but I've always kind of honed in on what it is that people want. So I realized early on, like people don't want to read anymore. They just want to watch a video or they just want to listen to something. Right. And if then they want more information, then they'll go read. So I just started, you know, really growing the practice sort of with, you know, everything in mind of how kind of like culture is is flowing. And then, you know, about when at the age of like 30, Eight, I really started, you know, saying, okay, what did it, what it is that I want to do? What am I interested in? I started getting into fashion. I started, you know, really just sort of paying attention more to my children, wanting to travel more. Your children were getting older already at this point, right? I mean, right. I mean, they were probably like seven, six at that point. Um, And now, especially post pandemic, really it's about, you know, I'm in the office. I operate two days a week. I do virtual consults from home. Nice. Um, and I'm in the clinic doing lasers and injectables and things like that uh, every other week, one day. So really, it's about two and a half days in in the office per week. 
And the rest of the time, I'm able to focus on everything else that fulfills me and everything else that makes me feel whole and happy so that I don't burn out, so that I continue to be a caring physician, uh, so that I continue to be a good mom. And being home with my kids, I try to drop them off whenever I'm not operating. I try to pick them up, you know, whenever I'm not in the OR and I can't. Um, and just really being involved in their lives, even though sometimes they piss me off. Um, <laughs> no, come on. Uh, and, you know, just trying to basically keep them off crack, Rabbi. That's a very good um, goal, I think, with child rearing. I don't know if I would consider that like the, the an ultimate goal, but certainly as like a, a basic threshold. I think that's I think a basic a good, threshold. A good, a good, it's a good floor, maybe not the ceiling, though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> How's that going, by the way? Are they? Are, it's is going crack, great. The crack far, habit is not, you know, not initiated. It's going good so far, but I just feel like there's like so many challenges as a parent, especially like post COVID with you know teenage girls. There's been depression, eating yeah. disorders skyrocketed with the boys, uh, keeping them active off social media. You know, just I think there's so many threats coming at kids these days. You know, early sexualization this whole woke indoctrination. And I think one of my friends, she's an Argentinian Jew. She said the the most important populations in Los Angeles right now for Judaism are the Persians and the Orthodox Jews. Because I feel like we were the ones that really were at the forefront of like, how is this going to affect the children? And, you know, and right. not really afraid to engage and speak up and, you know. Challenge. Challenge, not just challenge, but really just like say, okay, why? Why do you think that way? Show me the evidence for that. What do you think about this evidence? You know, just like really trying to yeah. get out, get people out of their echo chamber, I guess. Yeah, not easy in, in today's climate. Um, no, not easy at all. What's kind of been your Jewish journey like? Have you, I mean, again, I, I know the, the Persian culture is very traditional in a sense, but not always necessarily strictly observant. And there's kind of like. Right. It's more like superstitious. <laughs> yeah, like growing up, my mom would make me turn the burner off and on on Shabbat, or she wouldn't drive the car, but I would have to open the door for her. She'd I'm not going to hell, but you are. <laughs> yeah, I'd open the door, she'd sit in the car, and then I'd close the door. That was okay, you know. Um, but no, I mean, I think for me, I started sort of like realizing that I can't shut off my brain unless I'm not in, like when I'm in temple, it's the only place I can shut my brain off. So I started sort of doing that more and more often. And, you know, we have Rabbi Wolpe and he's an amazing orator and is able to really take esoteric stuff and make it very relevant. And, and that's at Beth. Uh, it was at uh, Sinai temple. Sinai. Okay. Uh-huh. And so I started just realizing there's a lot of like value in that, then just taking that little bit of time to think kind of globally and, so I, I I was doing that in business, but I wasn't doing that in like spirituality or I don't know, introspective yeah. ways at all. I just felt like I was just pushing, pushing, pushing all the time. And I think COVID made me just like stop. And, and I was in my home. They shut down our practices for two months. And I was just like staring out my window being like, I have the house. I have the kids. I have the husband. Why am I running so fast? Like, who am I doing this for? Why am I insane? You know? And my daughter was applying to high schools, which was made me feel very old. And um, I realized she's four years away from college and I could see kind of where the college campuses were going. So with much trepidation, I did a post and I wrote hashtag Shabbat Shalom with much anxiety. Why? Why was that so anxiety producing? Because with the Persians, like we never said we were Jewish in Iran. Like even my, like my husband, when I was going to put a mezuzah on my office door, he's like, don't do that. Are you nuts? Like, you know, so it's just, you never really spoke about your Judaism in Iran and we're first generation. So you don't hang like Hanukkah stuff during Hanukkah on your house. Like we, we didn't, none of that. I got invited to speak at the federal building um, against the, you know, public school system in California, trying to take Holocaust education out of the education system. And my husband's like, is there security there? Like, do we need to hire someone? And so I went, I spoke at the federal building and then he like swooped me off stage and like, we immediately left to escape danger. And by the way, it's interesting that they had a, a Persian Jew speaking about the Holocaust and Holocaust education. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just because of like the influence and people knew me and my social media and they were yeah. just like, you know, this is an important, whatever, maybe useful person. So, yeah. And, and I'll tell you like, you know, the the Iranians were never involved in the Holocaust, but they almost were. There's actually a bridge in Iran that's still named after the Nazis. 
Really? So they were that was the bridge they were going to cross over, and then it never happened. But I'll tell you, like when I watched Schindler's List, I was in the theater crying until the lights came up. Like I, I was so affected, and to this day, nothing. Nothing is off limits. Like I'm a surgeon. You can curse. You can tell off color jokes. I don't care. But when it comes to the Holocaust, I just cannot handle it. I don't enjoy going to Holocaust museums. It's like very disturbing to me in a way that's, I don't know. I mean, understandable, but it didn't happen to my family. Maybe the Italian, the Italian part of your family. (laughs) Who knows? So yeah, I was just sort of like got into it just, you know, just to start speaking up a little bit, normalizing, speaking about being Jewish because my daughter was four years away from college. Then when the conflict happened and up until then, like I kept kosher just because my medical school was kosher. And after that, I just sort of kept kosher. It was easy. And I'll eat out, but like I'll only have salmon. So I'm not like not going to go to restaurants, but it was kind of like that. I didn't keep Shabbat really. I would go to temple just because of what, you know, the things I mentioned. That was kind of my level of of observance. It was basically like Yom Kippur. We were like Persians were like the Yom Kippur Jews. So then, you know, people started kind of attacking me online during the conflict when I started speaking up up for, you know, Israel and trying to, you know, say, no, it's not apartheid. No, it's not genocide. No, it's not here. Facts. And I started getting attacked and people were asking me questions. And the beauty of social media is that the person's not standing in front of you. So you can read the message and not reply and then go research it and then come back and reply, which is amazing. So I was doing that just sort of so I could fight back online. But then what ended up happening is I found my roots, you know, and I always encourage when I speak on college campuses and I speak to students, I always encourage them like, yes, you should know your roots so you can defend Jews and, you know, all these threats that are coming to us. But really, you should learn it because it gives you, it grounds you and it gives you the strength, just like a tree with good roots. Like they can't, they can shake you. Some leaves might fall, but you're never going to get toppled over. So I I just encourage the young people to go learn about your own history, not to fight other people, but just to know your own history so that you know who you are and where you come from. And I really think a lot of young Jews and just young Americans in general have no roots. And so they're looking for groundedness in these fake sources like social media likes, like drugs, like alcoholism. I don't know, like um, dating the wrong guys and looking for love and looking for something to hold on to there. But I just feel like, you know, that's the most important thing for me to pass on to my kids is an understanding of their history and where they come from. And I think that's the best gift you can give them is that strength to know that their core values matter and their people matter and what our people have been through. I think that that is an antidepressant. A beautiful way to put it. How are you doing that with your own children? What are you What are you trying to actually pass on? I'm very loud um, in the community. I'm very loud on social media. I do a lot of you know going on podcasts. I do a lot of writing um, uh, articles. Uh, very outspoken. I tend to be um, more conservative politically, as most Persian Jews are, because you know I just wrote an article for Newsweek that the Ashkenazi Jews don't understand how anyone can vote for a Republican because they have the trauma of the Nazis and they associate that verbiage with the Republican Party. But every other Jew from every other part of the world, <laughs> like the Russians, the Iranians, the South Americans, we're traumatized by socialism, and much of us have lived through socialism. And we've seen what it's done to people in the country. And so we associate that verbiage with the left. And so we're like, how could you ever vote for the Democrats? We just don't understand. And so I think like looking at, you know, how we uh, the voting patterns and, and people's lens through which they see the world can help us kind of unite and understand each other a little bit better. So I'm very vocal about those things and a very, you know, I like discourse. I like talking. I like understanding. I like finding where we have commonalities and differences and kind of respecting those things. So, you know, through my podcast and through my articles and through my social media, those are the types of topics I bring up, which are very uncomfortable for a lot of people. I think over the last year, I've probably lost a hundred thousand followers. Um, because some people just don't want to hear the other side. They can't fathom that anyone would think differently. They can't fathom that anyone might be a, a lovely person, come from a place of love, 
have similar core values even, but just see a different way of, of reaching, you know, where they think this country should go or where our education system should go or whatever. But I'm just trying to bring that dialogue back. And my kids are witnesses to that. And I think, you know, it's given them a lot of strength to speak up as well, which I'm so proud of because I've seen their journeys of like hearing their friends say things about Israel, for example, and they know it's not true, but maybe they don't have the facts. And so they don't feel confident to speak up, but then they'll come to me like, mom, someone said this, what do I say? What's, what's the truth? And so I'll tell them. And then over time to the point where my daughter even stood up in front of her whole school and said something. And that was, you know, from not even being able to speak up to her friends, her, her inner circle to standing up in front of the whole school. I mean, that's an amazing journey. That's awesome. Good for her. Now, I'm really curious about your, your journey, speaking of journey on social media, because it sounds like you've on the one hand built your practice through social media initially. And now have this very robust following and, you know, express your opinions and, you know, and your, your feelings on those platforms. At the same time, it seems like you're pretty hesitant about it, at least for your children. Uh, and in general, as kind of a, as you said, the, a, a false antidepressant, maybe a placebo antidepressant uh, at the same time. So how have you navigated a relationship and, and, and a healthy relationship with social media? That's a great question. I think um, you can really curate who you follow. You can curate what inspires you. You don't have to follow, you know, if if you're having issues with, you know, your body, you don't need to follow Victoria's Secret models or whatever. That's probably not going to be. You just caused me an unfollow right now. She's like, come on. <laughs> no, but I mean, that stuff doesn't bother me. I, I love, you know, beauty and, and many things and how I define beauty. And, and, you know, that's, you know, inspirational to me. So what something that I might like to follow may, might not be the most healthy thing for someone else. So I really think you have to kind of curate your experience. And that's probably why a lot of people will unfollow me because they cannot for their own mental health, they're in such a fragile place that they can't follow someone that's not saying things that they like. Um, right. And I think there's a lot of fragility happening right now. Well, let, let me push back to it for a second, because how do you square that with the other critique of kind of this echo chamber? And I follow everyone. I want to know what they're saying because if I don't follow them and I'm not hearing what they're saying, how do I know what the counter argument is? Or maybe how do I know I'm not wrong? Right. You know, I want to, you have to follow different people. You have to But if people are curating their experience on the one hand, then they're not going to see that. Right. So I mean, but, but you have to do what's right for your mental. I don't blame people for unfollowing me if that's, you know, that disturbing to them that, Oh my God. Like, how could your life experiences make you see the world this way? Like, I don't blame people for doing that. I just don't think it's the right thing to do in certain situations, but in other situations, you know, it is what it is. You also, I think, have to cut the amount of time that you are spending on social media. Now, for me, during the conflict, I was on social media eight and a half hours a day posting in defense of Israel, <laughs> in addition to like my day job. And it wasn't healthy. I was waking up with anxiety for the first time in my life. I've never had anxiety before ever, but I just felt so important deep in my core that I couldn't stop. And I didn't want to stop, even though it was having health effects on me. Wow. I just, I, I was so, I felt like I was fighting for the survival of our people. I also, I think like I saw what happened in Iran and how propaganda can ruin a country and so I also felt like I was protecting America in some way, and I didn't want America to go down either. And so I was just like, no, propaganda, bad, you know, like, so I think it was just so deep to my core. So I think everyone has to kind of weigh what it is that it's doing for them. Now, for my kids, I didn't have them get phones forever. Um, they were the last ones in their entire classes, all of them, to have any electronics whatsoever. They on their own deleted TikTok because they realized that it was not good for them and they were addicted to it. So they're they're responsible. But yeah, I mean, I do have to monitor, you know, their time too because they're young and it is addictive. It's addictive for us, much less them. So I guess there's no real good answer. I think it's just sort of checking in all the time and saying like, how is this helping me? How is this hurting me? Now for me, it has helped my practice, not as much as SEO. Not as much as other great business practices that I, I employ, but it does help. And I think 
I've been able to make such a huge difference in this fight against anti-Semitism. I get messages all the time, like, thank you for your side of the story. Every other feed I see is one one-sided. Yours is the only one that helps me balance my views. Or I saw what you wrote, I went and researched it, and I agree with you. So just, I think that it's such a powerful, as an influencer, I think it's such a powerful uh, tool that if I didn't use it in this way, I wouldn't be able to sleep well at night. Like at this point, if I was just posting boob jobs and, you know, which I have a separate account for that, but I wouldn't feel fulfilled and I wouldn't feel like I had a greater purpose outside of myself. And I really think that that is also for adults, I think is such an antidepressant, right? Having a purpose and serving others outside of yourself when you don't have to. I mean, you know this better than anyone. I think that that's really what people are searching for. I think they sit and they meditate and they keep looking within themselves for the answer. I don't think the answer is within us. I think the answer is in service to others and in service to God uh, or whatever greater, you know, I say God. Like I'm good with that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I think that people are, are approaching this wrong sometimes. I don't think you're going to find the answer within you alone on a poof in your bedroom, like saying, Oh, I don't think that's, that's <laughs> where the answers are. If there's, you know, I, I was going to ask you if you've gotten feedback or your, you know, positive feedback for your pro-Israel stances, or if you felt like you were just kind of preaching to the choir, so to speak. And be- no, not at all. I think that's what was different about my account because of the Netflix show. My following was not following me for this. They were following me because of the show, because of beauty, uh, education, you know, fashion. So you kind of took an existing audience and then started importing the that kind of content into that audience, which is which is right. really cool because you're actually reaching uneducated or low Some people that have maybe never even met a Jewish person before. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's really unique. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just, I, I couldn't like give up that opportunity. I think that was kind of where I was coming from. So tell me about this Netflix show. Was this kind of your brainchild? Did you just, I mean, obviously you're in Hollywood. Okay. So, you know, it makes sense, but like, how'd you come with this idea? And then even if I had a great idea for a show, I'm not sure I would know like who to call, you know what I'm saying? Like, so how did it all materialize? Yeah. So no, I, I you know, I, I mentioned that I was in theater and I loved, um, I've, I always say I've never met a microphone I didn't like. So <laughs> I, um, always knew I wanted a show because I just, again, for me, the fulfillment aspect of it, helping one person at a time is amazing. But if I can influence the masses, like that is just so like gratifying to me. So I did actually a few pilots before this one and I was under contract with E for a year and that ended up not getting picked up. I was devastated. I was like, oh my God, I just did like all this work for a year. And how did you even know like who to approach? Like, did you have friends from being in Hollywood in the industry? Remember how I said when I graduated, like I just started making videos for my website because nobody wanted to read. So what I didn't know at the time is Google owns YouTube. And so when anyone would search anything like tummy talk expert, my videos were the only ones that would show up on Google. So it kind of became my video resume. So when reporters or journalists were looking for an expert for a quote or for a TV appearance, not only would they see me, they would click on it and see how I was on camera. So it became almost like a video resume. So I never had a publicist, never had that stuff until recently, but I was getting all these opportunities because I had my video resume front and center. Very cool. And I was I was doing a lot of TV. Um, I was doing a lot of magazine articles for free, like nothing. And so I think people kind of, these producers that were looking to develop these shows had seen me a million times every time they would Google something. So they were actually approaching me. Very cool. And who came up with the name uh, Skin Decision? I like that. Actually, I think the producer came up with that. <laughs> we were all like, eh, like we don't like the name. But apparently with Netflix, that name has to be translated into 32 languages. Mm-hmm. So it can't be something that doesn't translate well into other languages. And apparently Skin Decision translated really well. Well, but the, the pun is obviously not going to translate. Yeah, right. But like in like South America, it was... It was called something like totally different. Like it didn't even translate into skin decision. It was just like a totally different name in Spanish. I didn't look into other countries, but you know, apparently like, yeah, they, they look at all those things. So it's not just like, is it a catchy name? It has to like make sense. Interesting. So did you create the concept? 
No, actually, Nurse Jamie came up with the concept. And one of the producers I was working on for the E! show that didn't get picked up, he was on this call about, you know, this show, Skin Decisions. So he's like, okay, let's go get Nazarian because he'd worked with me on, you know, that project. So it's kind of like dating, you know, you date a guy, maybe it doesn't work out with him, but like he has a friend. It was like- <laughs> and it sounds like your goal with the show is kind of to demystify. Yeah, it was really to like elevate um, and educate and do it in a beautiful way. Like I was not interested in doing um, a circus act. You know, I already had a successful practice. I already had a reputation in my community. I wasn't trying to mess that up. So really, I felt like the show was so beautifully done, so respectful, so truthful and authentic that it really just elevated the entire industry. I was getting calls from my friends in different states being like, two women came in today for facelift consults. They watched your show and they felt like it gave them permission to do this for themselves. It really helped the industry too. That's awesome. How do you identify like candidates to be on? Like, are people dying to like just get on reality TV and just whatever? Yes, or do you they have to are. cajole them to like? No, so they they have a casting department. And so people apply. I think they do like Facebook ads. They don't give specifics, but they're like casting for a plastic surgery show. And then people will like, you know, submit their stuff. Then they'll make a little video and, you know, we'll look at their story. I'll look at their anatomy. And you have to understand too, we only film for like three, four months. So if it was something that I thought needed a year, you know, of multiple treatments to fix, that person's not a good candidate for the show. Like, but I'll take you in the office. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was, it was basically looking at their health and that, that honestly, like I learned to be a little bit more aggressive on like, I would say before they even come to me, they have to get blood work, chest x-ray EKG done before we even consider them for the show. And we didn't do that for this one. And actually one of the patients on the show in the last episode, I had to say, no, I had to say, I can't operate on you. It's too much of a risk because once she got all of her work done, we got her medical history. I was like, you're a great candidate for surgery, but you can die on the table. Like, I'm not going to do that. Meaning with certain surgeries, there's an elevated risk of- No, like this person had a very risky in general- history, medical history. And any surgery could be compromising for them. Any surgery could have, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, what was the whole production process like? Was it fun? Was it interesting? I love that stuff, but it was like being a resident again. We were up at like 4.30 in the morning for hair and makeup. Um, we'd be filming, you know, eight to 10 hours. And that was about three days a week. And then I had my children. I had my practice. I had my husband. So I was really exhausted, but it was such an amazing opportunity Afterwards, it was a monsoon for our office. I ended up having to get a call center for a while just because my staff couldn't even handle it. We were getting like 150 phone calls a day. For new patients. Yeah. It was crazy. It was nuts. My my entire staff looked like deer in headlights, especially the front desk, just like on the phone. Like, <laughs> And so what did you do with all these callers? In other words, did you try to refer them out to other practices? No, I mean, they would take it, we would give them pricing, or maybe they were just calling trying to get on the show. So, you know, we would say, Oh, we're not, we're not doing another show yet. Or like, you know, please enter please email us your story. We'll keep it on file in case we do do another show. So it was just a lot of triage. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily uh, growing the practice per se. It did. It did grow the practice a lot. It did. Is there a goal for another season of it? Or what's the, uh, what's the plan? Right now, I think the industry is going through a lot. I don't, I don't know if you're aware, but like the stock of Disney dropped like 50%. Netflix went through it a moment. Um, so I think right now a lot of things are on hold. The budgets are just down. Yeah, the whole industry is down. And my patients too, they're just like, oh, it's so hard to sell something right now. But no, I mean, we're actively working on two other show ideas that I think will be really fun and kind of not expensive for these um, people to make. And so, yeah, we're working on some fun stuff. I love it. I love TV. I love hair and makeup. I just, (laughs) I love all of that stuff. And I think the impact that you could have globally with some of these networks is just so fun. That's really cool. In in your own practice, would you say you more enjoy working with the famous sort of celebrity types or with just kind of your everyday, you know, mom that comes in? I think it depends. In our practice, when we get celebrities, they're like really, really, really A-list. They're not narcissistic. They're just super nice, grounded, cool people. Really? So they, they behave like a soccer mom. So I would say I've niched my practice very much so in a very well-adjusted, successful person. 
that is, you know, aging or that lost a lot of weight and they have skin hanging everywhere, but they're not unhappy with themselves. They're not unhappy in life. They just need help. So I'm I'm very lucky in that I have very meaningful conversations with my patients. I don't need a social life because they are my social life. And we have just really good, deep conversations or even like financial conversations about where we think the market's headed. I mean, these are very highly intelligent, successful people. Um, And so I'm blessed to really enjoy those interactions. Is it almost all women or are there men that come in after accidents and things like that? It's not even after accidents. Men come in for tummy tucks and liposuction, facelifts, um, eyelids um, are big. Uh, so no, it's it's men and women, but generally in plastic surgery, I think it's like 10 or 15% male. The rest is female in general. That's kind of like a high-priced hairdresser. <laughs> kind of. I always say I'm like a, a therapist with a knife, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, I think you're going to do what I what I suggest, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, Sheila, just in closing, what's what's next for you? What are the, some of the, you've got these other show ideas percolating. Are you kind of still leaning heavy into the Israel advocacy stuff? Are you, are you exploring new vistas in your career? Like, what are some of the horizons that are, that are still out there for you? You know, Ari, I think I'm in a place where I've really achieved everything I set out to do. And I look at everything through a quality of life filter. You know, I'm like, is this going to be financially fun, but also like good for my family? Are they going to have fun with that? Uh, is this something that we can maybe do together? So, you know, I just, I'm, I'm in a very like grounded, comfortable, happy place. And I do a lot of things because it's fun. But it's not because I have to or I'm trying to push hard or like trying to prove anything to anyone anymore. So, yes, we're pitching the show because I think that'll be super fun. I'm actually honing in on all my businesses and just trying to get all of the processes pat down and improve the emails and the flows that go to my patients to help them feel better taken care of or inform them more. I have an online e-commerce site, The Skin Spot, that... Uh, we're constantly bringing on new products and I'm testing them. My entire bathroom is like filled with new products to try. <laughs> but no, I think everything I'm doing right now is just super fun. And yes, it could be stressful at times just because, you know, timelines and things like that. But it, there's no like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not living in this like uh, sense of urgency anymore. That's a good place to be. And when is this uh, perspective book coming out? Oh my gosh. Chapter one is what we're working on right now. <laughs> out, out of how many chapters? I don't know. I think hopefully by the end of the year, it's like my 2023. It's so funny too. I feel like people write books to get on shows, but I got the show first. So I'm like, do I need to write the book? And everybody's like, you need the book. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. The goal is really to share your family history, but also your personal experiences. Yeah, personal journey um, to finding my voice and also my perspectives. I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying what you think. I think it's a shame that my parents left everything to come to the land of the free and freedom of thought and freedom of speech. And people are so afraid to speak these days. I think it's just horrific. Mm -hmm. So if I can, you know, in any way through sharing my story and kind of how I got to this place, encourage other people to do the same, I think that's time well spent. Fabulous. Dr. Sheila Nazarian, a renowned physician, but also a Netflix star, producer, I don't know what the right title is, future author, (laughs) and passionate pro-Israel advocate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ari. Thanks for having me on. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.